Our scripture reading this morning is going to be from Judges chapter 2, 16 through 19, as you can see on the screen there. I'll go ahead and read. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshiped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies, as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Lord, we come before you this morning knowing that you are the God of all, creator of the world, creator of each and every one of us, and you are always in control, and we give you praise and glory and honor. This morning, Lord, I pray your blessings upon our time together. I pray that you'll give me clarity of thought and wisdom, and that the the words will be from you and from you only. And Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together in worship and to learn more about you and your will for each and every one of us. I pray this all in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. My uh, throat's a little scratchy. I'm drinking a lot. Um, It's the way my body reacts to stress, quite frankly. So, excuse me for that, please. So I want to begin today with a little story. It's a real story. It happened to me a few years ago. Um, I used to work for a funeral home in Ann Arbor. I was a part-time employee there. They called me a funeral service assistant. So when there was a funeral and they needed extra help, they would call me and I would go help for those days. Um, I started out, first three months I was there, the man in charge said, you are a trainee, nothing more than a trainee, and that's the way it's going to be. This, this funeral home is owned by a large corporation. He was moved to a different funeral home. We had new people come. They didn't know me. I didn't know them. And uh, I didn't work for several weeks, and then they called me and came in, and the very first thing the lady said to me, the new manager, was, you're the expert here. So I went from trainee to expert. Life continued on with that, working at the funeral home, at these funerals. Eventually, the interim managers were replaced with a new manager. He was a little quiet, kind of hard to get to know. COVID hits. And the funeral business changed forever. I hardly worked at all. You know, there were just, if you recall, there were just huge restrictions on the number of people that could attend a funeral. And so I was hardly working at all. Didn't hardly know my boss, I felt like, at all. And we would communicate by text, working rarely. And one day he sends me a text and says, Hey, one of our corporate funeral homes in Rochester Hills needs our hearse and a driver. Do you want to do it? I said, Yes. Hadn't worked in forever. Yeah, I'll do it. He says, Great. Here's the address. They want you there at 830 in the morning. Okay, that's all the information I had, and uh, it seemed like a big deal to me, you know, so I, I had to get up really early, drive to Ann Arbor, you get to the funeral home, there's no one there, of course, it's way early, I had to unlock the building, turn off the alarms, gather up the stuff I needed, go out to the garage where the hearse was, our garage was such that I had to move two other vehicles out of the garage first in order to get the hearse out, put those all back, lock the place up, turn on the alarms, and now I have to drive to Rochester Hills from Ann Arbor in rush hour traffic. I'm from Manchester. I get to the four-way stop and there's three cars in front of me and I'm going, where's everybody going today? You know, that's how I react to traffic. But I found out too that when you drive a big black Cadillac hearse, 
people don't drive the same way as if you're driving my black Jeep Wrangler. You know, nobody cuts you off. You know, a little turn signal, they'll give you plenty of space to come on over. Made it to Rochester Hills. Worked that day with the people there for this funeral and burial. They send me back to Ann Arbor late in the afternoon. I'm on 696 in the afternoon rush hour traffic, and there's an accident somewhere in front of us. Pretty soon, we're all just stopped. We're all just sitting there on the expressway, just not moving. Three lanes, four lanes, I don't even know what it is there. And I got to thinking, which I tend to overthink. And so I'm thinking there, and I kept thinking about my boss. I don't know him real well. I don't feel like he knows me real well. But I think either he's got a lot of confidence in me, or he's crazy. He's nuts. He's foolish. What is he doing sending me out on this with, with so little what I felt was experience, you know? And I just kept battling that back and forth. Michelle and I had that conversation. She felt one way. I felt another. And I never really solved that. Fast forward to this spring. Pastor Ron comes up to me after church one Sunday. Would you like to preach on one of the Sundays that I'm not going to be here? I thought, oh, my goodness, you know. I've known Ron. We've known each other for like 17 years now, so I know him well. Crazy, nuts, foolish. Those are not words I would ever use to describe Pastor Ron. He's, you know, a man of God, godly wisdom. He cares for his people. He cares for you. He cares for me. And I felt like, okay, he's, he's honoring me. He's telling me, i got a lot of confidence in you. There's been times when I haven't felt that way in the last few months. But I can appreciate what he's doing and he's doing it for me. And I know it's because if you remember last summer, if you were here and our guest speaker didn't show up, and uh, I, I would fill in doing the, the announcements and the, and the introduction of the guest speaker for Pastor Ron, and that day I did a sermon too. And uh, I did it on Psalm 19. I've noticed the pastor's been changing that psalm every time he tells the story lately. But it's, but it's actually Psalm 19, just the one. And uh, I did that sermon, and that's... I know that's why Pastor felt like he could ask me to come here today and do this. And so it's been my prayer from the beginning that, uh, that God would use me in this time. And that it's not going to be crazy, nuts, and foolish, but it's going to be something worthwhile. Now that a year ago I had about four minutes to prepare, this year I've had four months. So we'll see how that goes. <laughs> so this time of Israel, as we read in Judges there, is, is a very difficult time. Um, the time of the judges lasted for about 300 to 400 years. It started with the death of Joshua after the promised land had been mostly conquered, and it ends with the anointing of King Saul. It's about 300 to 400 years. There's 14 judges in total, 13 men and one woman. They're, they don't, they're not chronological. They're, they overlap in times they served, and even probably where they served, they're from different parts of the country. But the country itself was in, was in a mess. As we read in Judges, they were um, worshiping the other idols and the, the people around them, whoever they worshiped, that's who they were worshiping too. And they were forgetting the Lord who had done all those things for them. I spent most of my life just ridiculing these Israelites for doing this. How could they do this? How could they fall from God that quickly and let things slide? As I've gotten older and I take a look at our country, I don't feel that way anymore. I feel like our country has changed dramatically, even in just the last few years. And I feel like we are eliminating God in every aspect of our society, whether it's school, work, politics. God is not to be talked about, and he's shoved out. You know, there's a, uh, just this year we celebrated, celebrated 50 years of Roe versus Wade. Now, I know that was 
determined unconstitutional a year ago, but that didn't make it illegal. That didn't stop abortion. That just made it the states would decide. And we have language now where we call that a right, a reproductive right, and it's fetal tissue. You know, if that one cell of that fetal tissue was found on the planet Mars, we proclaim to the universe that there's life on Mars. You know, we would just rejoice in that. And I feel that is such an evil thing that our country just embraces and it does. A couple other things, thanks to the Internet. At that time, it was almost Vice President Joe Biden. It was after the election, before the, before the inauguration. And uh, there's video of him saying that he believes in marriage. He and Barack Obama, Barack Obama believe in marriage between one man and one woman. That's the way it's always been. That's the way it always will be. That is such a godly thing to say. That's Genesis chapter 2. That's the way God created it, one man and one woman. Fast forward to 2015, another ruling. That all changed. To now, to the point, in 2023, just 15 years later, if I stand before you and say, I believe marriage is between one man and one woman, I'm going to be labeled a right-wing extremist. My hate speech, I'm bigoted. Those things. It used to be a biblical view that we all agreed on, and now it's something far worse. And I just I don't know where our country is going to end up. What's going to happen there? I'm not sure. Um, perhaps judgment. Israel faced immediate judgment from God when they walked away from the Lord, and they had these repeated cycles that they fell away from the Lord. Um, I have several. Um, Bible commentaries at home, and uh, they all describe this period of Israel's history in, in some way. Um, a man named Lawrence Richards wrote the Bible Reader's Companion, and he describes it with five words. And I'm sharing, I'll go ahead. I'm sharing this because it's five words that all begin with the letter S. So just like Pastor Ron, here's my alliteration. I didn't figure it, think of it, but here it is. So this is the way he describes Israel's time place. They sin. Israel sins as a nation. They embrace idolatry. They embrace the cultures around them. They abandon God's law, their sin. Followed by servitude, where God allows an enemy to oppress Israel and to hold them down. So sin, servitude, supplication. The people finally repent and turn back to God through supplication. Salvation, where God raises up a judge and they defeat the oppressors in silence. A time of rest while the judge helps Israel remain faithful. There's sin, there's servitude, there's supplication, there's salvation and silence. Unfortunately then for the people of Israel, then the cycle repeated itself. And it was almost like a downward spiral. It says the Bible tells us it kept getting worse. You know, so they're they're instead of just instead of this, they're they're going down. They continue to go down. More and more sin. They never get back up to where they should be. They continue to fall lower and lower. So today I'd like to spend the, our time um, talking about one of those judges, Gideon. Gideon, and the story of Gideon is found in uh, Judges chapter 6, 7, and 8. going to spend some time reading a lot of verses and uh, doing a little talking about them. But we're going to hopefully explain those verses, make them more familiar to us, and to help us to understand the time and the passages a little better. I have the uh, New English translation, so it might sound a little different than, uh, it's not the RSV or NIV, so it might be a little different than what you're used to. Judges chapter 6, verse 1. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight, so the Lord handed them over to the Midianites for seven years. 
the Midianites were so cruel that the Israelites made hiding places for themselves in the mountains, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, marauders from Midian, Amalek, and the people of the east would attack Israel, camping in the land and destroying crops as far away as Gaza. They left the Israelites with nothing to eat, taking all the sheep, goats, cattle, and donkeys. The people of Midian is real interesting to me. Moses lived for the first 40 years of his life as the adopted son of Pharaoh. He then kills that Egyptian, and he thinks he's getting away with it, finds out he's not, so he escapes. He flees to Midian. He went to Midian. There he marries Zipporah, and he lives there for 40 years as the shepherd, and his father-in-law is Jethro. After Moses goes back and leads the people out of Israel, Jethro and the others from Midian come and rejoice with Moses of what God has been doing. But now here, just a few years later, Midian is attacking Israel. Amalekite, man, they're just a thorn in the side. Amalekite attacks the people of Israel just after they leave Egypt. We see them here attacking. King Saul is fighting against them. Even in the story of Queen Esther, the um, Haman, the uh, evil, evil person that wants all the Jews killed, he's an Amalekite. So those two countries are involved here, the other people of the east, east of the Jordan River. They left the Israelites with nothing to eat, taking all the sheep, goats, cattle, and donkeys. These enemy hordes, coming with their livestock and tents, were as thick as locusts. They arrived on droves of camels, too numerous to count, and they stayed until the land was stripped bare. So Israel was reduced to starvation by the Midianites. Then the Israelites cried out for help. So we see here right from the first passage there, the Israelites did evil. That's the sin. They did evil. And then they are asking for, for, a, um, for servitude, where the Midian suppresses them, rather, and now supplication. They're calling on the Lord to save them. The Lord sends a prophet. When they cried out to the Lord because of Midian, the Lord sent a prophet to the Israelites. He said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of slavery in Egypt, I rescued you from the Egyptians and from all who oppressed you. I drove out your enemies and gave you their land. I told you I am the Lord your God. You must not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now live, but you have not listened to me. This is the sin of the Israelites. Verse 11, one verse, all kinds of information here. Then the angel of the Lord came and sat beneath the great tree of Oprah, which belonged to Joash of the clan of Abizir. Gideon, son of Joash, was threshing wheat at the bottom of a winepress to hide the grain from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord. Here um, in the Old Testament, there are several times where the angel of the Lord is spoken of. Many theologians believe that this is actually Jesus before he became fully human, that this is a form of the Son of God in something that looks like a man that Gideon can see and Gideon can recognize, but it's actually Jesus, the Son of God, that is approaching him here. And Gideon has no clue. We, the reader, know that. Gideon doesn't know that, that this is the Son of God that is approaching him. And what's Gideon doing? He's clearly a farmer. He's threshing his wheat. Um, threshing the wheat is supposed to be done on the hilltop. I'm sure you've heard the stories before. You thresh the wheat up there. The chaff gets blown away. The grain is saved. And that's how you thresh the wheat. But Gideon's afraid. He's fearful of the Midianites. And so he's hiding. He's hiding in the wine press 
out of the wind, out of public view, and he's trying to thresh his wheat there because he's fearful of the Midianites and what they might be doing. Verse 12, The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. What a way to greet someone, isn't that? Mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Gideon, however, not, not, not taking it. Sir, Gideon replied, If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say the Lord brought us up out of Egypt, but now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to the Midianites? Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you. But Lord Gideon replied, How can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I am the least in my entire family. Both of these times, he's saying, Lord, there's no miracles. God isn't with us. There's no miracles. I am not the person you're looking for. I am the weakest person here. If you allow me, I think I can understand Gideon quite well, actually. I feel like I can relate to him after this. If I were Gideon standing there, you know what I'd be saying? I don't know this guy. He doesn't know me. He's either got a lot of confidence in me, or he's crazy. He's nuts. He's foolish. How can I be this way? This is not right. I cannot do this. But the third time, in verse 16, the Lord said to him, I will be with you, and you will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. Gideon finally is beginning to relent. But Gideon is not going to get, let the angel of the Lord get away easy. He wants a sign. He always wants a sign. He says, if you're truly going to help me, show me a sign to prove that it's really the Lord speaking to me. Don't go away until I come back and bring my offering to you. He answered, I will stay here until you return. Gideon hurried home. He cooked a young goat with a basket of flour. He baked some bread without yeast. Then carrying the meat in the basket, he brought the broth in a pot he brought them out and presented them to the angel who was under the great tree. This is a big meal, way more than these two men can eat. This is a big, big meal that Gideon is coming before as an offering. The angel of God said to him, Place the meat of the unleavened bread on this rock and the unleavened bread on this rock and pour the broth over it. And Gideon did as he was told. Then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and bread with the tip of the staff in his hand and fire flamed up from the rock and consumed all he had brought. And the angel of the Lord disappeared. So the angel accepts this offering of worship from Gideon. This is one of the reasons why most theologians believe this is the Son of God, because an angel would not be accepting worship from a man. But here, this angel of the Lord, the Son of God, does accept this offering and the miraculously burning of it from the fire from the rock. Gideon knows his Old Testament, though. He says, I have seen the angel of the Lord. I am doomed to die. That's what the Old Testament tells him in the law of Moses, that he is doomed to die because I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. In verse 23, though, we hear, it's all right, the Lord replied. Do not be afraid. You will not die. So Gideon builds an altar right there, right then. He builds an altar to worship the Lord, and it says the altar remains there. I don't know how they spoke to one another. That must have been something, though, to hear the Lord's voice like that and to uh, be able to have a conversation with the Lord like that. And throughout Gideon's life, we see this over and over. So Gideon has now accepted the call of the Lord. The Lord has told him, you're the one I, I want. You're my hero. I will go with you. You will defeat the Midianites and these people that are against you. It'll be as I do it because I am with you. 
But there's sin in Gideon's life, in his family's life. Just like all the other Israelites, they're worshiping idols there in, in their land. In verse 25, That night the Lord said to Gideon, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one that is seven years old. Pull down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole standing beside it. Then build an altar to the Lord your God here on a hilltop sanctuary, laying the stones carefully. Sacrifice the bull as a burnt offering on the altar using the fuel of wood of the Asherah pole you cut down. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord had commanded. But he did it at night because he was afraid. This fits Gideon perfectly, doesn't he? He's doing it at night. He's afraid. He had already told the Lord over and over that he was not the one. But he is being obedient here. He does it at night. He's afraid. He cuts it down. He builds a new altar to the Lord. They worship them by sacrificing the, the bull on that place. The key thing there, too, this is his father's altar to Baal. It's his family's idol worship. And he tears that down and builds a new one to the Lord. The next morning, the people begin in town and stir. They, they find out immediately that their altar to Baal has been destroyed. I don't watch the crime scene investigator shows, the CSI, but uh, man, they find out immediately who did this. There's no, no question here. They immediately find that it's been Gideon, and they want to kill Gideon. Gideon is going to die for what he has done. He was obeying the Lord by eliminating the sin in his life, but the people of the town say, Gideon, you are going to die because you destroyed our altar and made a new altar to the Lord. In verse 30, we see, Bring out your son, the man of the town, the man of Joash. You must die for destroying the altar of Baal and for cutting down the Asherah pole. But Joash, Gideon's father, whose altar he destroyed, shouted to the mob that confronted him, Why are you defending Baal? Will you argue his case? Whoever pleads his case will be put to death by mourning. If Baal truly is a god, let him defend himself and destroy the one who broke down his altar. Overnight, his dad has changed. He was a Baal worshiper. It was his altar. Gideon destroys that altar, and now Joash is defending Gideon. I would have loved to have been there. Did Gideon tell his dad what had happened, that he had seen the angel of the Lord? Does his dad now know? Does his dad now believe that Gideon is the judge, the new leader of Israel? I don't know. Question, or verse 33. Soon afterward, the armies of Midian and Malak and the people of Israel formed an alliance against Israel and crossed the Jordan, camping in the valley of Jezreel. Then the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon with power. The Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. He has to be filled with the Spirit in order to do what he has to do. We see this throughout the Old Testament. We have the Holy Spirit. That is a gift that we've been given, each and every one of us. They don't have that in the Old Testament. It's not been given yet. But Gideon is clothed with power from God through this Holy Spirit. He takes a stand by blowing the ram's horn, calling the people to war. And who's the first persons to respond? His clansmen, the clan of Abizar. He had just destroyed the altar to Baal. They had just said, we're going to kill you for destroying that altar. But now Gideon calls them, and they come and to begin to prepare to fight this battle against these people from the east. He sends all other messengers to the other tribes of Israel in the near, um, nearby. All their warriors come. All of them respond to it, says. 
Later in the scriptures, we find out that 32,000 men responded to this call of Gideon. 32,000. I think I would be feeling pretty good about it. The problem is, the Bible tells us that Midian and the people of East, they had 135,000 men in camels that were couldn't even be counted. So that's somewhere like a four-to-one disadvantage there. So Gideon should have been encouraged, but he wasn't. He was not encouraged because he still felt his army is too small, not big enough to fight that army of Midian. So he goes back to God and says, I need a sign. I need another sign before I can do this. He says in verse 36, if you're truly going to use me to rescue Israel as you promise, prove it to me this way. Probably a familiar story to many of us where he puts out that fleece, the wool fleece. In the first night, he wants the fleece to be wet and the ground to be dry, and it does that. The next night, he wants the ground to be wet and the fleece to be dry, and the Lord does that too. He provides Gideon with that very special sign there. Gideon, in verse 37, even my version says, please don't be angry with me, God. He's saying, God, don't be angry with me, but let me do this again. That's what he wanted to do at the second night. Every person I read says, don't do this in your life. This is not something that we should follow. He's very close to testing the Lord your God, which in the Old Testament it tells us not to. In Matthew, when Jesus is being tempted by Satan up on the tower, and he says, jump off, the angels will rescue you, Jesus responds by, do not test the Lord your God. And that is what Gideon is very close to be doing here, is testing the Lord your God. For us today, we have God's entire revealed word for us to lean upon. We have the Holy Spirit to lean upon. We have all kinds of ways to determine God's will for our lives. And we don't need to be testing it with a fleece that is laid out. As we continue on, Gideon and his men, they march over to where the, uh, near the valley where the enemy is, where the Midianites are, and he wasn't feeling good about the numbers. God shows him that sign again. He's probably encouraged again, ready to go to battle, the 32,000 versus the 135,000. And then the Lord says to Gideon in verse 2 of chapter 7, you have too many warriors with you. You have too many warriors. You're 32,000. If I let you fight the Midianites, the Israelites will boast to me that they saved themselves by their own strength. Therefore, tell the people, whoever is timid or afraid may leave this mountain. This, again, is part of the Mosaic Law. In Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, it tells us that if you just planted a vineyard, you don't have to fight. If you just became engaged, you don't have to be a part of the army. If you're afraid, they don't want you there because you're going to make other people afraid. And so the Lord instructs Gideon to say, everyone that is afraid may go home. So he's got 32,000 men. Everyone that is afraid may go home. 22,000 men leave. 22,000 men leave. Now he's down to 10,000. Quite frankly, I'm surprised that Gideon didn't leave. I mean, he's the one that's been afraid from the beginning, right? You know? But he doesn't leave. He stays because God is a hold of him. God is showing him how this is going to work, although it's hard for Gideon to trust in this. So now they're down to 10,000, 135,000 versus 10,000, 13 to 1 would be the, uh, the odds there, it sounds like, approximately. And the Lord tells Gideon, no, still too many, still too many. So another familiar story, bring them down to the spring and I will test them to determine who will go with you and who will not. God has a test. It's a, you know, it's kind of a funny test here, really, because he says, if, if when you go to the stream and you get down on your hands and knees and put your face in the water, those are the men I don't want. Somehow they need to stay on their feet, 
pick up the water and bring it to their mouth. Some people think, you know, that doesn't sound very efficient to me, by the way, to try and do that. But some people think, oh, those people are on their feet. They're watching. They're alert. They're great warriors because they're paying attention. And that's what uh, many commentators think. While the others were just too busy getting a drink of water and weren't paying attention to their surroundings. They weren't aware of their situation. And God pairs them down from 10,000 to 300 by doing that. Um. I don't know about how I feel about that. Actually, I do know how I feel. I think that it's just a test. It's just a way of dividing them up, of God choosing his warriors that he wanted and only the warriors that he wanted. I really think that if he wanted blue-eyed blondes, he would have made it happen. You know, it doesn't matter what the test was. It's just that God wanted only 300 men to be part of this army that was going to fight the 135,000 Midianites. Again, If I'm one of these 300, I don't know Gideon. He probably doesn't know me. He seems to have a lot of confidence in me. This really seems like it's crazy. It's nuts. It's foolish. There's only 300 of us. 300 of us. We're going to go against the Midianites in the valley of 135,000. But the Lord tells Gideon, with these 300 men, I will rescue you and give you victory over the Midianites. Send all the others home. So Gideon collected the provisions and ram horns of the other warriors and sent them home, but he kept the 300 men with him. The next little section is a great section because it just shows how wonderful God is. Here's Gideon. He's already asked for two signs. He did the fleece twice. He's constantly looking for the Lord to help him through this. But this time, the Lord comes to him. That night, in verse 9, the Lord said, Get up, go down into the midnight camp, for I have given you victory over them. But if you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura, listen to what the Midianites are saying, and you will be greatly encouraged. Then you'll be eager to attack. God is speaking his language, isn't he? If you are afraid, Gideon's been afraid every time, every step of the way, every step of the way. If you are afraid, then do this. Do what I have planned for you, and you will be encouraged. So Gideon does that. He takes the servant. They sneak up to the edge of the camp. And it says in verse 12, the people of the east had settled in the valley like a swarm of locusts. Too many, their camels were like grains of sand on the seashore, too many to count. Gideon crept up just as a man was telling his companion about a dream. This is one of these little miracles that constantly happens in the Bible. It just so happened that as Gideon got there, he overheard this dream. Perfect timing. God's perfect timing in this. Here's the dream. I had this dream, and in my dream, a loaf of barley bread came tumbling down in the midnight camp. It hit a tent, turned it over, and knocked it flat. His companion answered, Your dream can mean only one thing. God has given Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite, victory over Midian and all its allies. I'm sure Gideon was very encouraged to hear that. It seems that while God was raising up Gideon and his 300 men, he was already beginning to push down the Midianites and the people of the east. They knew who Gideon was. They knew that the Lord was with Gideon. They were beginning to fear Gideon already. And this is all because of the Lord working there. When Gideon heard this dream, he bows in worship. Right then, right there. I'm sure it was quiet, but right there he bowed in worship. Then he returned to the Israelite camp and shouted, Get up, for the Lord has given you victory over the Midianite hordes. 
He divided the 300 men into three groups, and he gave each man a ram's horn and a clay jar with a torch in it. This is another one of those battle plans that it's crazy nuts and foolish, isn't it? You know, here we got clay jars, torches, and ram's horns. And he said to them, keep your eyes on me. When I come to the edge of the camp, do just as I do. As soon as I and those with me blow the ram's horns, blow your horns too all around the entire camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Verse 19 starts out, it was just after midnight. It's nighttime, it's dark. This is not a normal time for a battle. I walk in the morning. Every morning I get up early. I'm out the door at 5.30 in the morning to go for a walk. It's past habit. It's a ritual. And I'm out 5.30 in the morning. On Sundays, Michelle and I do it together. I was nervous today. It was 5.20. But, uh, so we were, we were out this morning walking. We walk every morning. I walk every morning. I'm very familiar with the surroundings. I walk on Lamb Road. I walk on Bus Road. I don't walk the same way every time, but I walk those two roads. I know every house that has a porch light on at 5.30 in the morning. I know every house that has their garage lights on or which ones have both lights on. I know that big white yard light over there is the big white pole barn. That little yellow light over there, that, fittingly enough, is the yellow house next door. I know there's a house down there that has candlesticks in their windows, like here, year-round, candlesticks in their windows. They even have a shed in the back of their property with two windows, a candle in each window. I'm very familiar with these night lights early in the morning. A few years ago, it was late in the fall, late October, early November. I'm walking down Lamb Road. This is within the first 10 minutes of my walk. I'm approaching Bus Road. There's a cornfield there. Every year it's corn. And it's almost to the, there's pine trees that block the view, but I'm almost to the corner and I see lights. I was very startled. I see lights in the cornfield and I could not figure out what it was. I thought, is that a truck? Is it farm equipment? I don't know what these lights are. I think if it's, if it's a truck or a farm equipment, I should have heard it. I should have heard it when I left my house. But there's just all these unusual lights out there, and it's really startling to me. I turn the corner on bus, now I'm paralleling the field. There's lights the whole length of the field. I, thought, what is I am startled, really startled. The hair on the back of my neck is standing up. Almost embarrassingly, the day before, the corn that was six or seven feet tall was totally blocking my view. That corn had been harvested. There was nothing blocking my view anymore. I was seeing a quarter mile across that field, the Kemner Lane, and I was seeing all the houses that were there. It was just house lights, not aliens from space. It was just, it was just house lights that I'm seeing there that I had forgotten about because for four months my view had been blocked. The Midianites, they don't stay in the same place all the time. They're nomads, but they travel constantly in tents. They live in tents. If there's 135,000 of them, I don't know how many tents there are. There's got to be a lot of little fires. There's got to be camels everywhere. And they are all sounds of the night that they're used to, that they're familiar with. Even though they might be in a different spot, they're going to be very familiar with those sights and sounds. And it's all normal to them. What's not normal is what God, Gideon, and the 300 have in store for them. So it was just after midnight, after the changing of the guard, when Gideon and the hundred men with them reached the edge of the Midianite camp. Suddenly, they blew the ram's horns and broke their clay jars. That's an alarm clock, right? Midnight, you're sleeping, clay jars, 300 clay jars are breaking, 300 ram's horns are being blown. Then all three groups blew their horns and broke their jars. They held the blazing torches in their left hands and the horns in their right hand, and they all shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. This must have been chaotic. 
something they were totally not used to. Battles of the day, if one person had a torch, there was probably a whole lot of men behind him without a torch. If one man had a ram's horn, there's probably a whole lot of men behind him without a ram's horn. This would have been totally unusual for the Midianites. They would have been so baffled by what was happening, and they would have expected a great force, not just 300 men, but a great force. But we already know that God is involved in this, and God continues to stir. Each man stood in his position around the camp and watched as all the Midianites rushed around in paddock, shouting as they ran to escape. When the 300 Israelites blew their ram's horns, the Lord caused the warriors in the camp to fight against each other with their swords. Those who were not killed fled to places as far away as Bashita near Zerah and the border of Abel Malachite near Tabith. The Israelites have just won a great battle. The battle continues throughout chapter 7 and parts of chapter 8, but the Lord used Gideon, his 300 men, in exactly the way the Lord wanted it to happen in order to win this battle. There's a couple more events that take place there, but, uh, but the battle is essentially over, and we move on to chapter 8. At the end of chapter 8, verse 28, it says, That is the story of how the people of Israel defeated Midian, which never recovered. Throughout the rest of Gideon's lifetime, about 40 years, there was peace in the land. What an amazing story. This is a grain farmer. He did not consider himself anything but that. He thought he was the least of his tribe, but God was able to take that person, take Gideon, use him to create a great victory for God and the people of Israel, and they were able to live in peace for all those years. So as we think about all this, there's a lot of verses here. And why Gideon? Why Gideon here in these verses? And why is he such a big part of this book of Judges? You know, there's a hundred verses in chapters 6, 7, and 8, a hundred verses that deal with Gideon. There's some of the judges that only get two verses. Another few only get three verses. But Gideon gets a hundred verses. When we meet Gideon, he's a weak man. He's afraid. He's broken. He is afraid. He's broken. Through human eyes, picking Gideon to be my leader, it's crazy. It's nuts. It's foolish. How about 300 men to fight 135,000? It's crazy. Nuts and foolish. Hey, let's fight with clay pots, torches, and ram's horns. All of that is crazy, nuts, and foolish. But it meant that God had to depend on, or Gideon had to depend on himself not on himself. Gideon had to depend on God and not himself. Gideon could only depend on God and not himself. And this is where, where we need to start, too. This is exactly where we need to start. It's not in our strength. It's not in our abilities. But it's in God's abilities in him using us. There's just a few things that I really thought were important. There's probably a whole lot more. In uh, chapter 6, verse 34, when it's the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon with power... We are all clothed with the Holy Spirit. When we know Jesus, when we've accepted him as our Lord and Savior, that Holy Spirit is within us. That is our strength. That is our power. That is the presence that is always with us. That is the Holy Spirit that speaks words when we're not able to. We all have that Holy Spirit, just like Gideon did too. When Gideon is first called, right up there in verse 25 of chapter 6, Gideon had to destroy that that uh, that altar to Baal that was in his family. And 
That may be true for each one of us too. Is there sin in our lives that we need to get rid of first, that we need to repent of and to turn from and change before God can fully use us? Um, Chuck Swindoll, teacher, pastor. I have the Chuck Swindoll study Bible here even. Um, he takes that cycle of Israel when they're spiraling down and puts it in very personal terms. This is how he describes it for each and every one of us. He talks about there comes compromise and disobedience. We compromise on sin in our lives. We think, ah, it's just a small sin. It's not that bad. I'm better than him. I'm clearly not as bad as that guy. You know, we compromise that way. That compromise leads to disobedience. That compromise and disobedience leads to bondage. We think we're free. We think we're living the life, but we're in bondage to that sin. The bondage leads to misery. There's no misery. There is only misery when we're in bondage, and we can only get rid of that through Christ, through peace with Christ. When we're walking in step with him, that's when there's peace. Otherwise, there's misery. Finally, there's deliverance and rest because we get to the point where we say, Lord, I can't do this anymore. I pray that you forgive me of my sins. I repent of my sins. I turn from these evil ways. I follow you. We have deliverance and rest. That can lead to affluence. Life is good. Everything is fine. Affluence can lead to indifference, leads to weakness, leads to compromise, leads to disobedience, leads to bondage, misery, finally deliverance, rest, and affluence. That cycle can continue in our lives forever, just like it was part of Israel's, as a nation, part of their life for those 300 years. The only way we can stop that cycle and live in deliverance and rest is by walking daily with God. Only through our walk with God, reading his word, studying his word, can we um, escape from that cycle of that personal downward spiral. Another one of my favorite things is how Gideon worships. In, uh, when he, the, he finds out that he's not going to die because he sort of saw the Lord, he builds an altar to the Lord right there. When he hears the dream and the interpretation of the dream, he worships right there at that point in time. This is something that uh, we can do. We're called to worship here together, just like we are today. We're called to do that. But we can worship at any time and any place. When God moves in our lives, that's the time to worship. Right then, whether it's through a song, a word, a prayer, or just thank you, Lord, whether it's silently. Finally then, in the call of Gideon, in um, chapter 6, verse 14, he says, The Lord turned to Gideon and said, Go with the strength you have. That strength would be because of the presence of Jesus, the presence of God in his life. Go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you. I think that the sending you is the key part here for us today. It may not be, well, I'm pretty sure it's not going to be to fight the Midianites. That's not going to happen anymore. But what is God sending us to do? What is God sending each and every one of us to do? You know, perhaps it's a literal sending. Maybe he wants you to be a missionary overseas or some other type of thing like that where he's actually sending you somewhere into a full-time service to him. Maybe it's supporting that missionary. Perhaps he's sending us and telling us it's time to stop that cycle of sin. It's time to get rid of that hidden sin in our lives and to move on and to move on from there. Perhaps he's saying it's time to, he's sending us to heal a relationship with someone, maybe someone in our family, someone in our church. 
Maybe he's saying it's time to fix a meal for someone. Maybe it's time to send a text message to someone. Maybe it's time to visit someone. Something like that. There must be so many different things that we can do here at church. All the things we can do. We can decorate the church. We can clean the church. We can run the sound, the, the, uh, other, the live streaming. We can be a Sunday school teacher. We could be a Bible study leader. We could do a wana. We could do beyond a wana. We could play an instrument. We could sing a song. We could attend Sunday school. Maybe someone there needs you, needs to hear your story, or maybe you need to hear their story from them. There are so many things that God is sending us to do and we'll, each and every one of us would have something different and something uh, that is just for us. You know what? Maybe he's even sending you to preach a sermon. I don't know. When we look at it with uh, our eyes, you know, there may be times when we ah, it's just crazy. That's foolish. That's nuts. I felt that way in the last four months. I wondered how close can I get to the date and still back out at one point, you know? So... I feel like it's crazy, it's not as foolish, why am I doing this? You know, but I needed to learn the lesson too, just like Gideon, that God is with me. And so the great thing about it is that I can stand before you today as, as followers of Christ, believers in Christ, and just like the angel of the Lord told Gideon, I can say, mighty hero, men and women of valor, mighty warriors, God is with you. In the strength of the Lord, he is sending you. I don't know where, I don't know what, but God is sending us and the Lord will be with you. Father God, I thank you for your time you've given us today. I thank you for your word. I thank you for Gideon and for the lessons that we can learn from him. I pray that, uh, I pray that today that we will remember the things that are honorable unto you and that uh, are glorious unto you. I pray, Father, that uh, we will be able to walk just as Gideon did, knowing that you are with us, you love us so much, that you have a plan for us, and that uh, You are sending us somewhere. May we be bold enough to trust in you, to forget about ourselves, and to be bold enough to let you guide us and lead us in the places that you would have us to go. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity, and I pray this all in Jesus' name.